Here we go. So hello everybody again. This is uh, Graham Frost with the Heart Shaped Decisions podcast again. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guest Chris Wilsden, who is another interesting and not famous person that I came across on LinkedIn. That's one the criteria for being on this podcast seems to have developed into that, that you're interesting and not famous. Um, I've only had one person on this week, around about 50 episodes of this. I've only had one person on that anybody would have probably ever heard of much before, um, you know, before they were on here. So that's, uh, so Chris, would you um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing now and how you actually got to the point of doing what you do now? Gosh, we've got half an hour. That's a long story. It's a very long story. Um, okay. Briefly, um, I come from a very working class background. And by working class, that means my father worked in a factory. My mother worked in a shop part-time. Um, they had houses. They lost houses because people lost their jobs regularly back in the day. I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, um, the rise of Thatcherism. It wasn't a pretty landscape for anybody. No. But my father managed to keep working. Um, eventually, we landed in a place called Home Firth in West Yorkshire, which was a great place to grow up. Um, loved it to bits. Um, but again, very working class upbringing. Mm. Uh, I didn't have a lot of what my, my peers at school had. Uh, you know, they go skiing and, and that sort of thing at Christmas through school. I'd sit there and, you know, think myself lucky if we went camping uh, for a week during the year. Um, so... You sort of grow up not having what other people have, but still being happy anyway. Um, I felt there was something missing in my life, and I always wanted to do further education. But at that age, I was a bit of a tear away. Um, and, yeah, to be fair, I was, uh, I mean, I know something of your backstory. So we've had this discussion. I wasn't, there is the phrase, um, but for the grace of God, uh, I never got caught. And I suppose that's, that's probably what it was. Yeah. Um, I, I lived right on the edge because that, dark side of my soul if I can call it that was was very attractive when I was young because that's where the action was yeah I had no patience I just wanted to be doing something mm. and it seemed if you misbehaved you could do something yeah uh, and very often uh, it led to opportunities to meet some really really interesting people flawed but interesting people mm. um so I got to my late 20s and uh, like everybody else, uh, we're feeling the pinch. I was an engineer at the time. Yeah. I was sort of doing okay. Other people were being sacked. I wasn't. Other people were being made redundant. I wasn't. So I thought, you know, I'm all right for a few years. Mm. And then I thought, you know what? This is this is nowhere to live your life. It's what my father did. It's what my mother did. It's what my family's always done, that very working class thing. And um, I started to think, well, perhaps there is something a little bit better for me. Um, I don't know how to do it because as a working class kid, in this country, you're just not given the tools to to better yourself. It's it's very difficult to do. Um, I look at a lot of kids now going through the university system, and since the the, the Blairite decision back in the 80s, the 90s, to um, push as many kids as they possibly can through university, what was an aspirational meritocracy has become nothing more than a money making game for a lot of people in a university. Who, as I found out in the last 12 months sort of care but are always looking to the next year and where you have a hierarchy within a university at managership manager level executive level who are treating themselves as if they're in a private 
corporation whilst treating their professors, their doctors, their lecturers as if they are in a public open profession, mm. which means terms and conditions, money, all the rest of it is so much lower and time is so much rarer and stress yeah. is so much higher. Seems the further you go up the tree, the less stress and more money you get in the universities. Separate issue. Yeah. So um, I felt when I was young uh, that there wasn't that opportunity for me. I had to find another way. One of the ways for me to do that was to join the police service, which I joined at the age of, um, I think, 30. Yeah. Um, when I joined, I immediately felt out of place because I was 30. And the police service was trying to get more younger people. But at the time, there were so many people not working, losing jobs in factories, etc. But there was quite a, a large group of people who had life experience that the police would have been silly to ignore. So mm. people like me were being recruited actively. I had no qualifications. I had a few engineering ones, HNC, mechanical and production engineering, stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I wanted to be a cop because I thought being a police officer, I could do something altruistic, I guess. Yeah. Um, I looked into it. The recruitment suggested to me I could do that. Uh, all the literature, the people I spoke to. When I became a police officer, I realised that that's not exactly what the police service is. Um, whilst there are people that care deeply about what they do, and I would never, ever suggest that police officers don't, it's a process. Law enforcement is very much a process, and it can be blind, and it can be prejudicial, and it can be biased, even though the person carrying out that, that process at the time tries very hard not to be. Yeah the systemic institutional discrimination behind law enforcement is quite obvious. Mm. And I think there are a lot of people within law enforcement who see that and become quite demotivated whilst they're in that process. Yeah. The length of service of a police officer used to be quite high because a lot of working class people going into it. Um, it was a way of becoming middle class. It was a way of getting a good salary. It was a way yeah. of going up the ladder if you could. Um, good profession to join from that point of view, which is why I joined it. If you want to feel spiritually fulfilled, which is something that I didn't realise I wanted to, mm. um, I didn't. For a working class kid, you talk about spiritualism and you think, I don't even know how to spell it. I don't know what it means, and mm. I'm not going to church. Church isn't for me, so, you know, whatever. Um, policing didn't fulfil that part of me. It made me happy when I did something good for a person who yeah. was described as a victim or a witness, which is, I think, an unfortunate label for a lot of those people. Um, but when I did something good for a member of the public, again, you see that exclusivity, that elitism within policing, for a member of the public, for the other person, yeah. When I did something good for them, I felt happy. Yeah. Um, and I found myself looking for the weirder sort of crime, um, stuff that other people would look at and go, well, we can't do anything with that. Mm. And I did, for a short while, get a reputation as a detective who would take on the job that's a little bit weird, a little bit strange. Um, stuff that other people didn't have the patience for, but that fascinated me. So it was quite cerebral. Uh, I'd meet people very often who would have uh, an autistic element or were 
frowned upon by their peer group wherever they were. So they were almost destined to be in the position that they found themselves in. Right. Um, and I had a great deal of satisfaction just doing something for them. You know, you don't always have to get a case to court and get somebody prosecuted for a case to be successful. There was uh, one that I always remember, an estate in Exeter where there were a number of arsons going on. And it was blindingly obvious it was kids. Um, so I could never identify and bring to justice the offender that, that through stupidity could almost have killed somebody through setting fire to something in a shed which set fire to a house. And they seemed to be doing this on a number of occasions. So I spoke to the, the fire service and they had this, this sort of fire starter thing going where they went into schools and spoke to the, them about the dangers of fire and all the rest of it. Yeah. So I asked them if they target the local school. They targeted the local school. They found there was a young man who had got some issues. They spoke to him separately. The school did their bit. And they got back to me and they said, yeah, we're really happy with this. Thank you for all your help. Um, I mentioned this to a few people in the police service. It's not a ticky box. I've not got a prosecution. It's not a good thing. In, in the arena I was in at the time, not, that's the wrong thing. It was a good thing. But in the arena I was in at the time, it mattered less than giving somebody a, a fixed penalty notice, perhaps, or, or getting a, a prosecution through court and a nice thing in the paper. Yeah. But that, to me, meant that that young man may now, I don't know, but that young man may now be living a better life. Nobody's going to get harmed. The mm -hmm. school felt better because they did something. And the fire officer that contacted me afterwards said, thanks for that. We'll keep this programme running for another six months just to make sure it's all right. Even though it's stopped it with no funding, we can see the relevance of it. Yeah. You know, so things like that spiritually gave me a great deal of enrichment. I got to 23 years in my service. Um, I did many, many, many things. Um, a lot of things I'm, I'm extremely proud of. And I met some wonderful, wonderful people who are police officers yeah. of all ranks. I had the uh, opportunity to speak to some people in some of the highest ranks in policing. And, and they, they are nice people. Yeah. Um, what I found is to get to that position, there is... There is a compromise. There is a sacrifice that they have to make. Mm. And it's not always one I would see. My personal view is a good one. Uh, you sacrifice some of yourself, a lot of your time um, to be. And to me, looking at it, what they'd achieved stopped looking like success. But to them, it's their version of success. And who yeah. am I to say it's the wrong thing? But um, I'd look at them... I wonder, should I bother? And I sort of made half-hearted attempts at it and then realised it wasn't making me happy. Mm. You know, when, when I was able to lead a group, a team, uh, I'll never forget, I was in Cornwall the first time this was commented on, and there's this old cop in the corner, he'd been working there 32 years, Marin boy, he's going to retire at some point, but he'd gone grey, looked like a, a thin... <laughs> emaciated human being in the corner right but when he opened his voice everybody listened because he got right. all the experience in the world he'd seen it all done it all and some of his stories are quite hair raising mm. and i remember he sat there one night and i was i was just asking people to do a few things and he said afterwards he said i've never seen this before you've got a very democratic leadership style he looked at me and said i like it but you know this is no good for the police and he was right, absolutely 100% right, because the police is a hierarchy, reflects the society we're in, and we're quite hierarchical. Yeah, and people yeah. don't talk enough about class in this country, mm. because class covers all 
all demographics, all colours, all cultures. Yeah. Everybody starts off at the bottom and everybody's trying to rush to the top of the pyramid. And it, it's, it, it concerns me that that discussion has not had, being within the police service, which sharpens and focuses that pyramid. So you have the vast majority of police officers are constables. Uh, now more and more they are police staff, so they're not warranted people, but they are still yeah. intrinsic and, and very important to the police service. And then you go up to your sergeants and your managers, then your inspectors, and all that is still middle management. It's not mm. true management. So you go supervisor to middle manager. You get to superintendent level and you start to see real management skills required. And above that, you start to get into the strategic policing arena where you look at chief superintendents and, and commanders and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but it's very much a pyramid. It's a hierarchy and orders come downhill. Mm. You can send information up and it can be listened to or not. And in my experience, sometimes it was, mostly it wasn't. Because you never see the whole picture, you're only feeding a little bit up. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you just got an arrogant idiot up there who thinks whatever they decide to do is the right thing. I think it's the same in, in, in big uh, corporates as well, uh, you know, where the people, the, people at the, the people at the top end of the, of the triangle, uh, when it's pointing upwards, they, they don't really know what's going on. Um, they think they do because the people who serve them, their sort of uh, senior managers, tell them what they want to hear uh, most of the time. And um, I remember when I was working in the railway industry and the, the railways were privatised and um, I didn't agree with the railways being privatised particularly, but obviously I'm working there, so I had to go along with it. And luckily, we had um, a chief executive who came along um, who we'd never heard of, and no one's really heard of him outside of the people who'd worked for him. And he came along and he actually said to us, I'm going to turn that triangle upside down, so I'm going to be at the bottom. He said, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to support you, and I want to listen to you. And for, for, for the seven years that I worked for him, uh, actually changed my whole perspective on leadership and um, because I, I've now got, you know, I now have very little time for leaders who put themselves at the top because mm -hmm. the, you know, the leader that I respect the most of all the people I've worked for in my life uh, was this guy who came along, he, did, he came along and he did road shows at every location in the country where there were, where there were appreciable numbers of staff. Everybody got to see this. He wasn't sent out on video or anything like that. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. He said, I am. And he didn't send somebody else. He didn't have a head of communications to go and do it. He came and he said, this is how I want to run this company. I want to be at the bottom. He said, I want to put the customers at the top. Yeah. So during my uh, tenure as a police officer, I looked at a lot of these things and saw the good and the bad mm. and some of the, the, the quite neutral, vanilla stuff in the middle and there's a lot of that there's a lot of things don't get done because they just don't get done things things don't happen because it's somebody else's job i'm too busy doing my job because there aren't enough people to do this stuff at the end of the day yeah uh, there isn't enough time in the day to get it done you know at some point a public institution which is what the policing is mm. will have to change its model because it's so time poor and resource poor that people will start to feel at some point the service they get isn't the one they expect. So their expectations 
which I don't think are huge in, in a Western liberal democracy, um, will start not to be met because mm. you can only pair it back so much to the point where actually the police officer turns around and says, well, actually, that's not my job anymore. Um, social services, why don't you do it? And everybody starts to have a bun fight. And, you know, I, I, I did sort of feel we were starting to get to that position when I left policing. But, you know, whether that's carried on or not, I don't know. Um, so after 23 years of policing, I decided that um, the only things that really set my heart racing were, oddly, uh, educational things. I managed to get a law degree. I'd done a, a legal practice course, which is the second stage of, of going on to becoming a solicitor. And I thought, you know, I actually quite enjoyed that. Um, and I did better than a majority of people in the classes I was attending. And I had no history, no experience of, of what it was they were doing for a day-to-day -day job. Mm. And I thought, well, perhaps I ought to have a go at this. That's when I came across ageism. Uh, I had a number of oh, interviews okay. with uh, top 100 firms and I'd walk in and sit down. And I remember at one, one interview in uh, Birmingham, um, a young lady who sat across from me with another young lady who was interviewing me from HR mm. at this law firm, looked at me and raised an eyebrow, literally went, oh, you're one of them. And I should have I should have explored what that was, but, but having some some degree of competency in interviews, I thought, okay, I'll flip this interview on its head now. Let's interview her. Let's let's get get all the bias out here because I know what this is straight away. Uh, and by the end of the interview, it was quite clear that one of them was, oh, you're an old person trying to be one of us. Um, and she was in her, her mid twenties. Uh, she'd done really well for herself. I think she was the assistant head of HR for that um, law firm. Yeah. Um, the person she was with had just started and she called me two weeks later and said, we've decided not to give you the role because uh, my assistant uh, felt intimidated. And then she said very quickly and quite aggressively, have you got anything to say about that? And I said, well, I think that's a load of rubbish, don't you? And she was silent. She said, well, I think a lot of people would be intimidated by you. And I said, that's an ageist statement. And she said, well, it might be, but I wouldn't admit that in court. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, see you later, alligator. Because um, at the end of the day, an interview is about whether you feel happy with that company. Yeah. And if they're representing that company, I don't want to work there. Mm. I did say to her, well, instead of being a, a trainee solicitor, can I be a paralegal? And she said, oh, yes, I think there'd be a position. Um, and I said, would that not be in the department that, that would be working with you? She said, oh, no, that's not in our office in Birmingham. That's in a different office. Right. Can I be a trainee solicitor in that other office? No, I'm afraid not. I'm in charge of trainee solicitors. And I thought, well, there you go. There's a bias. Yeah. There's a prejudice. And there's an admitted ageism. That wasn't the only occasion. And sadly, that was, I, there were four occasions when I, I got I got that attitude. Um, yeah. And I was astounded by that. So I thought, okay, let's not worry about this. Let's just retire, have some time off and think what we're going to do. Um, so I did that. I have some very good friends who are senior associates in the legal profession. And, you know, comments like, if it was 20 years ago, I'd employ you, but I don't think I can get it past the boss, get floating out. Oh. You know, and you, you sort of look at that and think, I don't want that to um, affect my friendship with this person because mm -hmm. that's, again, a bias, a prejudice. So we'd have a laugh about it, a few beers and move on. Yeah. Um, I thought what I'm interested in, I've always been interested in human rights. Uh, so I took a, a master's degree in applied human rights and I'm just about to finish the dissertation for that. Mm. Um, I found that really interesting. 
more because it exposed me to the university system, the educational system that we currently have in the UK. Um, and frankly, I was appalled by the way the education system treats the staff within it. Yeah. And in turn, how the staff just don't have the time or resources to treat their students the way I would expect them to do. Mm. Um, because my children, one of my children's been to university and after two years gave it up and said, it's a load of rubbish that I don't want to do this. Wow. And he's currently doing really well. He's bought a house, his you know, girlfriend and all that, got a full-time job, mm. doesn't look back with any regrets. And I, at the time, was quite annoyed with him. So I did my master's degree and realised that actually he's probably right. It's, uh, and there is a lot of this, we need as many people in to fill as many residential halls as possible to get um, revenue in through the door, to get bums on seats. Education is our primary concern, but if we're not getting the money and we're not all getting paid, then um, you know, education will have to get, take a second, you'll have to take a back seat. We'll have to, you know, there's a lot of recruitment, there's a lot of attempts to retain students from undergraduate to master's degrees. The world of PhDs is strange. In the UK, you have to get your funding in order to do a PhD. Mm. Land University, for instance, in Malmo, I've had some discussions with, and a couple of universities in the United States I've also spoken to on scholarships. Mm. Um, they employ you. You're an employee of the university and you're studying a PhD, and they use you whilst you're studying. They use you to lecture. Basically, they, they, there's a, a, a real career path there. In the UK, it's a privilege to be allowed to do a PhD, get some funding or pay for it yourself, or yeah. take out a government loan and be in even more debt, 20 or 1,000 pounds more debt plus whatever mm. else. That's just for fees. So it's a really strange hierarchical system here and it seems to have all fallen on its backside a little bit because education doesn't really appear to be the focus anymore, especially in research universities where most of the staff spend, in my experience, a lot of their time trying to find things to research, to get funding, to justify their position and teaching yeah. seems to be a secondary um, occupation almost and I went there expecting to be fed lots of new up-to-date information to learn about the 21st century and I mean how young people view the world what the world's going to be going forward when I'm not here so I'm 54 I might not be here next year might not be in 20 years yeah. so you know there's a lot a lot of the future is being nurtured in our universities and I was a little bit astounded to see I'm still reading books from 25 years ago i'm still talking about theories which are 40 50 60 120 years old right. um in the modern information age we've moved out of the industrialized into the modern information age i'm sort of thinking a lot of this doesn't really hold water now um people don't communicate in the same way we don't have the same motivations and beliefs that we once had society is a lot more well, a lot less unified than it once was for, for whatever, the myriad number of reasons for that. Mm. And you can't just say the problem is let's fix it. Um, so I expected university to be a bit more open-minded. Uh, certainly freedom of speech in universities is an issue because it seems to be more restricted than it is in open society. Wow. You, your right to have an opinion is 
valued, but can you just be quiet while you just take on board this information we're giving you? And can you put it on this piece of paper? Then you can go and have your opinion again. That's sort of how it felt. So you're being tracked down a way of thinking. Think like this. So a lot of um, critical theory, for instance, around a whole host of subjects, it's just that, it's a theory. Mm. So your feminism, your race theory, all, all of it, they are theories. Yeah. And if you wanted to, you could state the same statistics and go, yeah, but let's debunk this now. And there are, there is literature out there that does this in a, in a reasoned, civilised manner. Mm. What worries me about freedom of speech on a university campus is that if you say something that is not necessarily what the majority of people surrounding you want to hear, mm. this, this idea of cancel culture, this, this rude idea of, well, we won't listen to you, go away, you don't exist, um, extends into a university campus. And it's, it is, I found it rude, childish, extremely opinionated um, and um, regressive in many ways. Um, so the university system I found difficult to deal with because I'd actually come from a police system that, that actually wants you to think. And I, I didn't realize that working within the police service, you're allowed to think. Your opinion actually counted because you're the one doing the work. Mm. Once you go into the university system, actually your opinion sort of matters, but do as you're told. And that, including on a master's program, my concern for the police services as they recruit more and more from university graduates, and that's the intend, intention now, rather than people off the streets like me with no qualifications, yeah. life experience, they're going to lose what makes the police service a reflection of the society they're in. Because 50% of people don't go to university, 50% mm. and more. You know, we don't value those people enough in our society. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I got to a point where um, I'm considering doing other things in academia, but I'm not sure it's necessarily for me. That's a, a decision for the future. I opened myself up to the universe a little bit after going through coronavirus and COVID, mm. um, which I thought being a, a big, hard northern teddy bear, I'd be all right with. I'd be fine. Actually, I struggled through the first lockdown. Um, I pretended I wasn't. I found out that I might have a heart condition and I pretended it didn't matter, but it did. Um, I found out that um, I had other issues around my testosterone levels, which through years of working in the police service and, and the PTSD that that drew um, yeah. affected me hormonally. Mm. Um, so low mood and depression uh, at times. So I had to suddenly engage with uh, testosterone replacement therapy. Um, I had to engage with doctors talking to me about the possibility of a heart bypass, all sorts of things. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I've been out of the police service 12 months. Why all of a sudden am I this sick? And there is something to be said, when you relax, yes. that's the time you find the problems. Mm. You know, physically, if you go to the gym 10 weeks running, then have a week off, that week off is going to say, right, now you're going to break down because your body can't function without that stress. And yeah. that's the position I felt I was in. So over the last six, seven, eight months, I got to a point where I started to speak to, um, and this is gonna sound weird for a bloke who lives his, his life in a very evidence-based way. I started to talk to uh, a friend of uh, a friend 
who introduced me to an astrologer in Southampton. And I went through my birth chart and tarot cards and all that. Mm. I was quite astounded that somebody who'd never met me um, was able to tell me some very deeply personal things about my past that nobody really knows because everybody has those little, little secrets. Mm. Um, so I listened to her. And one of the things she said is you must try and open yourself up to the universe because the universe will provide for you. Um, your idea of heart-shaped decisions, which is why we first contacted yeah. each other. If mm. you remember, I, I approached you and said, what's a heart-shaped decision about? Yes, you did. Yeah, I'm glad you did. That, that was about opening myself up to the universe in a way, because I found that some of the best decisions I've made in my life weren't from the head, and they weren't from a, as a result of something I'd done with my hands to create a situation. Mm. It was merely listening to my inner self. What's my heart want to do here? Yeah. What's my intuition? Um, and my intuition on this occasion said, okay, do as this lady's asking you to do. Open yourself up to the world and see what the universe is going to give you back. Mm. As a result of that, um, I started to do acting something I'd never even considered in my life, but I did yeah. acting through the Yorkshire School of Acting. And I've had a wonderful time there. Um, acting's more about, well, it's, it's much more than just turning up, reading some words. It's, mm. it's about being authentically you, being the person that's inside of you that you might have hidden away from the world because you think that's not what the world wants you to see. A lot of people do that. Actually, the authentic you, the wild, wacky person that might say something inappropriate, but might also be the person that gets everybody laughing and makes people smile and gives them that warm, fuzzy feeling. That's all of that, all the flaws and all the good stuff very often gets submerged under this, I need to be this resilient rock, especially in the police service. Um, and I found it bringing all that out. So open yourself up to the universe. I spoke to you on LinkedIn, a couple of other people. Um, as a result of the acting, I spoke to... Uh, a wonderful guy who's had some horrendous experiences in his work in his life, a, a, a chap called David Childs, who mm. uh, lives just south of um, York. And he's writing some scripts and he told me what he was writing. Um, and I listened and that was one of the heart-shaped moments, one of those moments that says, you know what? This bloke's as mad as a box of frogs. Love him to bits, but he's absolutely bonkers. But what he's writing about touched me, touched me here. So I formed um, a company called Made From Cardboard Limited with him. Yeah. So we're an official company with two directors and hopefully in the next 12 months we'll start to create and film his vision. Because I think it's important that his, his, his vision and his experience is something that's brought more into mainstream. And if we can get that on some film um, festivals and some other bits and pieces, to get that out there would be great. He's, he's yeah. lived on the streets, he's had substance issues, you name it. And I've listened to what he's had to say. And every now and again, something pops up. Like you'll see the, the film about Bob the cat and his owner that's, that's all over the TV at the moment. Yeah, uh, That's fine. A heroin user who was on the streets that people looked after. What happens if nobody's looking after you? What happens if you're truly alone? What happens if it's just you? You don't even have Bob the cat. What happens to you? Well, you know, How do you survive? Well, I've been that, I've been that person. There you go. So I know you've been that person and we've had that discussion. Yeah. Um, I think that the UK, UK society as well, especially the mainstream media, is greater at acknowledging these things exist briefly. But, you know, that's an outrider. The really 
shitty, horrible, crappy stuff is, yeah, it exists, but let's not talk about it. And the really wonderful, fantastic, marvellous things that people do in the quiet space of their own time, like food banks, like going out and help the neighbour. Well, it's expected. Let's not talk about it. But we know it happens. We'll talk about it now and again. All the stuff in the middle, especially the celebrity sort of stuff, that's what they focus on because that draws eyes to TV boxes. That shouldn't be what society values. What society should value is the people that go out and help people like you when you're in that position, helped people like David, who didn't have to do it, who didn't yeah. do it for any... For any um, reward who didn't do it for anything else other than that heart-shaped decision to go i care yeah so we formed a film company to do that and hopefully we'll get that to fruition um we've it also led me to speak to a few other people on linkedin uh one of which was a startup in utah um sj squared yeah Wonderful people. And I just contacted um, a chap called Jake Strack, who's on LinkedIn. He's a wonderful human being. Um, his family is not unsurprisingly uh, part of the, uh, the Church of Latter-day Latter Saints, LDS, I think they call it. Yeah. Utah. Um, that's never come into our discussion. No. There's no evangelism about that at all. This is all about trying to make the world a better place. Mm. It's a technology startup. And right. it's working in a digital virtual world. Um, and I spoke to him about his title, a futurist. I said, what, what's a futurist? So about 10 hours of Zoom calls later, um, he, a wonderful gentleman called John Fisher, who's, who's the elder statesman of the group. So we are, we are in, instead, in startup language, we're, we're a founder group, a founder team, yeah. a founder board. Uh, spoke to me along with Suleiman, uh, Khan, who's, who's the development. So he's the chief technical officer, CEO's Jake, um, John's everything else. So they spoke to me and then they all popped up on the screen. We had a chat and I thought, oh, that's really nice. They're really lovely people. And then they offered me a job. And, well, sort of a job. They offered me to become part of their team. And I, and I knew some of the projects were already running, that revenue's likely to come in at some point and there would be some a degree of success there. But they were wanting to do something in the virtual space around digital networking and live streaming. And I had a vision about where they could take their technology. Because they had right. patents pending. And we spoke about that vision. And they offered me the role of chief business development officer. Um, and I was astounded. And I felt sort of unworthy, really, that this group of individuals weren't expecting me to put any money in, just my time and my effort yeah. to help them realise a vision that we all had, that we all clearly shared for this technology. Um, and I felt quite humble, really. Um, and you, 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 again, you come to a heart-shaped decision. What are my reasons for doing this? These people can make a difference yeah. in, in lives across the world if this technology comes to fruition. I should say when, because I've seen it and I know it works. If anybody's interested in listening to the podcast, I'll do a bit of advertising here, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please do. Uh, if, you, if you search M-I-I-N-G-L-E dot M-E, so that's mingle with a double I dot M-E, Mike Echo, um, and have a look at the webpage, you'll see what it is that we're about. So we've got a startup accelerator interested in us, um, services for the next two years that may be worth well in excess of $2 million once we've finished using their services. 
to create and develop the software we're going to be running and the platform that we need to do this and to market it. Um, that's happening this month. And to be in this position right now, mm. knowing that there is a future for this technology and we can help and develop this into something that in its way will bring humanity back into technology. It was an easy heart-shaped decision because I switched my head off and thought, well, I'm not getting paid for this. My head says, don't do it. I don't know who these people are. They could be nutters for all I know. Don't mm. do it. Um, I sat and thought about it and my heart said, you know what? These people speak your language. Sometimes you've got to accept that this little team is your tribe. Yeah. These are people who understand you. John certainly is a different personality to me, but he's very patient and he understands that Jake and I think in a very similar way mm. and we leak ideas. So my strength isn't in development of the technology as an engineer, as a developer. My strength is in the vision of what it can be and where it can go yeah. and the applications we can have for that technology. Um, and... I feel for the first time in a long time, um, I think that I feel very much at home as part of that team and very much at home as part of that vision that we've created as a group. So in an odd sort of way, going through 23 years, trying to be something that perhaps I wasn't. Mm. And then opening myself up to the universe and saying, well, what am I? Who am I? The universe has said, well, this is who you are. Why haven't you been doing this before? Oh. Um, you know, and where you feel inside, again, it's going to sound a little bit like woo-woo and weird stuff, but spiritually, I feel happier following those paths because I'm doing something that makes me feel, in a, in a sense, um, complete, happy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I think I don't, I, mean, I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't get it from what you're doing, but you, you get it from what you're doing. I get it for what I do. When I, you know, when I get up in front of an audience and I tell my story and I look at the expressions on people's faces when they listen to what I'm, and they think they're thinking about how they could apply it to what to where they are with their life. That's my. That's that's what gets me. That's what makes me do it. Um, you know, when I can, the idea that somebody like me, who's really and truly quite an ordinary person, I'm not. You know, I don't see myself as being anything special or anything better than anybody else. But the fact that I can actually inspire people with my story, that that is the reason why that's the reason why I do it. Um, and I, you know, I had a couple of opportunities to do it online last week. And I could see the I could see the expressions on people's faces on this on the Zoom call, you know, and I was like, well, wow, this this actually works. Okay, it doesn't work as well as it does in front of the live audience, but it's still working. I'm still, I'm still actually putting smiles on people's faces. Yeah. And taking yeah. them away from, just taking them away for half an hour or three quarters of an hour from the, you know, the humdrum, whatever it is. Because, you know, everyone's life has changed. Um, it, you know, wherever you are in the world, almost, your life's changed as a result of this COVID-19. And, um, you know, a lot of people's lives won't change back again. You know, so it's about taking you out of that and thinking, what, you know, what is possible? What can you do? Yeah. Well, when I looked at um, SJ Squared's vision for Mingle, um, one of the things that struck me straight away was 
especially in the digital space, a lot of this, for instance, you and I are two talking heads. So there's a great deal of transactional relationship going on here. Yeah. So it's, I say something, you say something, or we might have 10 heads, somebody says something, somebody else says something, yeah. we react. So it's almost transactional. Some of it's relational, if it gets yeah. that far. Um, there's nothing truly transformational about it. And one of the things that Mingle promises is to bring that virtual space alive into a more transformational experience. And by transformational, I mean a, a truly engaging experience in a way that with the best will in the world I get more of an experience sat in a room with you doing this than I am doing it on Zoom yeah, if, yeah, I, yeah. if I can try and push the envelope of this, this technology and get it to more of that engagement, more of that we're in the same room, in the same space mm. that we share and it's, it, that's, that's what's important as much as the face on the screen then I will have helped move this technology on leaps and bounds, well beyond where it is now, because right now I think that coronavirus and COVID and all the rest of it allows for people, Zoom became very rich on the back of coronavirus. Oh goodness, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I think it cost them 10 million in seven years to get to the point where coronavirus accelerated them to a point where they're making yeah. money. Yeah. So they're not an overnight success, no. but it's still only heads talking on here. You can go and look at um, platforms like Jitsi, J-I-T-S-I, which do this for free. There's, there's no monetization of it at all. Um, and that is run on Linux, and that has 10 million users worldwide, and it's a great platform. Um, Skype is still relevant if you want to use that. Teams is still relevant. There's so many different versions of this, yeah. but it's still this. And the, the vision is, and I'm sure our, our little corporation isn't the only one, um, the vision is that this can become more meaningful because this now is an accepted part of business to business, business to customer, individual to individual. Yeah. So it has to become better. Yeah. And the drive, I think the race is on to find that better. So to be part of that with a startup in Utah, which is very much taking over the mantle of Silicon Valley, yeah. uh, is extremely exciting to be, uh, I was going to say aloud, but that's the wrong word, to be welcomed into that. Wow. into that community there is something online called one million cups in the usa which allows entrepreneur entrepreneurs to uh pitch to each other and give uh, positive critical feedback yeah. about their ideas and having taken part in a couple of those um people are extremely welcoming people are extremely uh positive people don't hold back on their reason for not doing that is because they want to help you be better. And it's a phenomenal place to be in a way that the UK sort of struggles from the, well, if you're, if you, if you're the underdog, we'll back you. If you're successful, we're going to shoot you down. Hmm, yeah, absolutely. In America, if you're the underdog, well, we'll sort of help you out. But if you're successful, well done. Shake of the hand, what can we do to help you? And as, uh, part of that is uh, we're trying to create an advisory board for what we do. Yeah. Uh, in the UK, you'd be looking at a board of directors, which you'd have to pay. They have certain powers within the company. Mm. They can choose direction, talk about strategy, all that sort of stuff. In the USA, they prefer, especially around startups, to use an advisory board. And that's a group of people. Very often, uh, some of the moves and shakers within the, the tech landscape that we're in, certainly, who know about marketing, who know about development, 
who know about finance, who know about investment. And they, if they like your idea, will give up their time and energy for free to be part of an advisory board. And the understanding, to be fair, is, you know, if you're successful, we'd like to be part of your success. Yeah. In the UK, where you have a non-executive director, it's, I will help you, where's the money? Oh, absolutely. You know, and to, to actually be in that position in business, which again is a new arena for me, but to compare it to what's in the UK, it's really refreshing to see. Mm. And the amount of help we've had, I think, is commensurate to the, the belief in the idea and the vision of SJ Squared that I was not prepared to see. It's quite breathtaking, actually. Um, mm. And it is, it is quite a, a positive experience to be part of. So in a short roundabout way, if you can get involved in American business, you know, it's a hell of a ride, do it. It's a fantastic place to okay, be. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, that's, uh, so Chris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna have to speak again. We're gonna have to do a part two, I think, probably in about three months time when we get into 2021. And you can tell us how, you, how this is all going, because it sounds really exciting. That yes. You're just at the start of this new journey. Uh, I'd love to do a follow up maybe sometime early next year. Um, but for the time being, um, if anybody wants to contact you to talk about this or anything else, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, my name's Chris Wilsden. Uh, my surname's W-I-L-S-D-O-N. I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm, I'm on everything. You'll find me somewhere. Uh, come and say hello. More than happy to say hello to people, more than happy to discuss anything they wish to discuss. Oh. Um, there is one last thing I'd just like to say, and Absolutely. this is something we spoke about before, and it's... It's one of my uh, deepest, darkest secrets as a police officer, and I've always wanted to say this because this is what kept me in policing for the length of time I spent in policing, even though there were very dark times when I just wanted to walk away. Mm. In the first six months of my uh, service, I was working in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire, and I was called to a local supermarket just across the road from where um, I was working. And somebody had stolen a pasty or something and the security had called me over. So I walked across four lanes of traffic, nearly got run over twice. Typical cop, I suppose, busy. There were other things happening, but I got told, just go and sort this out. I was in the middle of trying to put a file together, all the rest of it, time pressures, work pressures, um, being what was called a probationary in those days, or a student officer now, those yeah. pressures are multiplied because there is a level of expectation which is above yeah. and beyond those of the people around you. Certainly didn't have the, expecta the experience to fulfill that expectation, so it was about learning. Go and sort out this man with a pasty. I got there, sat in the room with a half-eaten pasty in his hand, was an old, old friend of mine from about five years before. We'd grown up as teenagers. We'd done a lot of things together. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen him for five, six, seven years, something like that. Um, I thought he'd gone to university. I thought he was probably doing his, his things into chemistry. Mm. And there sat in front of me in the same leather jacket I remember him wearing when he was 17, 18, was uh, a heroin addict who stole a pasty and was trying to run out of the shop eating it because he was starving. Wow. Uh, he'd no previous, he'd not been arrested for anything else. There was no information that I was aware that was available to me about him. Mm. And he told me his story. He had a needle on him, but there was... Um, no stuff. It was uh, a new box of needles, actually, that he got from, uh, I don't know, needle exchange or something. Right. Um, and I thought, well, the only thing I've got on you is the fact you've nicked a pasty and eaten it. I said, haven't you got any money? He said, I haven't had any money for a, a week. 
I said, what are you doing? He said, I've, I've come into town. I've, you know, there's some other addicts. I'm, I'm sort of learning, call it uh, uh, grifting. He was learning how to grift, steel, shop grifting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said, how long have you been on this? And he told me and his, his family had helped him and there'd been some issues in his family and they'd, they'd locked him out and all the rest of it. And I looked at him and thought, I think, I think if I can say heart-shaped decision, this is the first one I ever did. Mm. So I looked at him, the security guard stuck his head and he said, are you going to nick him or what? I want him off this place. And I said, oh, he's just found 65p in his pocket. He's going to pay for it. I said, and the security guard said, well, why didn't he fucking pay for it? And he piped up because I, I was going to try and buy some heroin. What was 65p? And, you know, this bit of it, security guards getting really aggressive. Mm. So I paid for the pasty and I sent him off. I said, look, please, I know you. I know what drugs do. Please, please. I don't want to see you again. If I see you again, I'll do what I need to do. And, and that's it. You, you're locked up. You're going you're gonna to go to, you'll, you'll end up in prison at some point. Mm. And I don't want to see you die. I don't know what happened to him. But I, I know when I left, because I checked, um, that he hadn't been arrested for anything from that point when I'd spoken to him. Um, whether he changed his life or not, I don't know. Mm. I'd like to think that he did. Um, did I do the right thing? I'd like to think that I did. Um, and the fact that years later, when asked about, nobody had seen him. Nobody knew where he was up to. His family had moved away. I'd never been able to trace him. But if if just for one year he managed to go somewhere and have some peace of mind and try something yeah. new away from that drug, then doing that one thing was the right thing. Absolutely. That's a, a wonderful story to finish off with as well. Actually brought a lump to my throat because, uh, yeah, that, that shows true humanity. And um, most of us, at some point in our lives, get the opportunity to show humanity. And uh, a lot of people don't take that opportunity because they, they, want to keep, they want to keep the people above them happy. But you're, you know, I think you're, I bet there's quite, quite a lot of police officers that have done things like that and never told anybody. Because- You know, my friend, that's absolutely spot on. There are so many police officers out there who very quietly try and make somebody's life better in ways that never go rewarded, never go commented on. Yeah. But they have to say, you know, I'm not sure I'm allowed to do this, but... And they do have consequences, and very often very positive consequences. Yeah. I'm not saying it always works, but yeah. in, the, in, in the incidences that I've come across, the officer feels better, feels more motivated, because they've been able to use their discretion. Yeah. Um, the person they've dealt with very often has, has that, that moment of clarity, that lucidity to say, hang on a minute, what am I doing here? Somebody just cares. Because it's the fact that somebody just cared for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm. these people don't want to be what they become, especially when you're talking about addiction. Addiction is something, nobody wants to be an addict. No. You know, you don't take drugs to become an addict. You take drugs to get high and feel good. Yeah, exactly. The addiction is the bit that comes and bites you. That's the cost, the consequence. Mm. And to find that sometimes it does work, you know, why not? And there's, there's thousands of cops out there that do it. It's always unrewarded. It's always a quiet thing. It's always a nod and a wink. And to me, those are the things, the small little things that need to be brought up. And people need to realise 
that the police service in the UK isn't what it's painted as and that there are a lot of hard-working, caring individuals there yeah. that do their job in the best way they can. What is, to my mind, questionable on occasion is the structures and the discrimination that's built into the system because that's our legal framework. Yeah. Yeah. And that legal framework defines what a police officer does. And I think we should look at our society and say, especially after COVID, what is important? Because, oh, you know, yeah. right now, my local Amazon van driver is more important to me than my bank manager. Yeah. So why, why isn't that van driver getting something good? That person in that care home who cares for that 85-year-old who's seeing their last days out, perhaps not being able to see their family and only sees that care worker, yeah. is worth millions of pounds right now. Why aren't they being paid what well, they're worth? It's like, yeah, it's like the people who look after my, you know, my dad's nearly 90 and he's in a, he's in a care home in Scotland. And um, every, you know, every now and again, I ring up the care home and I say, um, you know, how's my dad? And they tell me, because I can't really speak to him because he's got dementia. He wouldn't even remember the conversation five minutes later. And uh, those people who are looking after my dad, they're actually on not much more than minimum wage. And I know they, they live, the care home's in a village outside the, the city of Perth where my dad lives. And, um, and, you know, those people have to pay for a taxi to get to work yeah. out of their minimum wage. And they, and they still do it because they enjoy what they love, what they do. And I had lovely conversation with the lady the last time I rang up. And she told you, she said, you sound very much like your father. I said, oh, do I? Oh, goodness me, you know. But, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, she was, you know, she had a lovely little conversation with me for about sort of seven or eight minutes. And she must have been busy, but she took that time to tell me about the fact that, that, that they they take my dad out into the garden for a walk around you know, every every couple of days. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't been out properly since March. You know, but they are actually taking it upon themselves to make sure that he still has some sort of life. And we don't value those people enough. No, we, we, have, we have this well, thing in the I'm UK very... where all, all kids should aspire to a university education. And as my own son has told me, perhaps that's wrong, Dad. Perhaps I, I've been and so didn't really fit in. It's not that I can't do it. I just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. There are a lot of kids who are never going to fit into that. Probably over 50% of the population we have a massive skills gap. So between A-level and university level, so what we're talking, levels four and five, I think mm -hmm. on the educational thing, so all your vocational skills, we've a massive skills gap. We are, well, I think, I think the care services, you've just mentioned them, I think it's something like 10,000 short in the UK for care homes. That's, yeah. that's the estimate for 10,000 people short now. Yeah. That's for care homes. We are short of long-distance lorry drivers, HGV lorry drivers. Yeah. We are short of plumbers. We are short of electricians. We're short of all these people because we don't value them. But they are the people that allow us to have the life we have and actually enrich our life by giving us mm. things we actually use and need. Whereas perhaps I'd question a professor who talks to me about um, some sort of theory that's 55 years old and earning 75,000 a year, there's a need for some of them, but quite the number of them that there are in a system that treats young people going through a university as almost like money-making cattle 
You can be crude about it. Mm. Why, why are we valuing that? Why aren't we saying, okay, why did we t- teach these young people that actually, rather than doing a, a degree, it won't achieve meritocracy. Most of the degrees aren't, aren't worth much anyway. You're not going to get a really good job out of this, as most yeah. of my friends, my son's friends have found. One of them's gone to Edinburgh to be a baker, and he's got a chemistry degree. Wow. But he couldn't find it. He got first-class chemistry degrees to become a baker because it, it, it nourishes his soul. Wow. It, yeah, it's yeah, what well. he actually found. It was something he really enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. So what's the point? Why not say to them, what do you want to do? Because whatever you want to do actually will value that rather well, than scoff it. Scoff at it will value it. And this is a whole, you know, we're going up, we're going into the we're going into a, a long episode here, but you know, I think <laughs> that's when you and I start talking, we don't stop doing it, my friend. Oh well I think, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think you know, one of the things I I know a lot of people who work in the education system, and it's very much the education system in this country, certainly primary and secondary, that I know a little bit about, is um about creating about making people all the same. Um and we've lost, most schools have lost sight of the fact that, I know a few teachers who haven't lost sight of this, but they, um, you know, most schools are so busy trying to keep Ofsted happy um, yeah. that they've lost sight of the, the fact that all their, all their young people are individuals. Um, yeah. And even, you know, even in the 1960s and early 70s when I was going to school, um, but I think you know a little bit of individuality was encouraged in those days. Yeah, you, know, you were you were encouraged. If they identified you as being good at something, they would try to encourage you. I mean, I was I was uh, encouraged to write because I loved writing, and uh, it was the only thing I was good at was English. I didn't like it. I didn't like any other su- subjects at all. Consequently, I didn't do very well at them. But the one thing I did learn to do was write properly and mm. uh, and and speak properly. And, and communicate properly. And that's, that's, you know, that's served me very well. Although I didn't, yeah. I didn't, basic get, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get some, you know, basic maths, you know, I could do basic arithmetic um, and everything else was kind of, you know, okay, you don't, I mean, the idea that you had exams when you were five and six years old, which they do now, um, is ridiculous. Mm. You know, in Denmark, you don't even start school till they're seven. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's. When my son left university and he was talking about somewhere to live, and we, we spoke about rent and mortgages, yeah, um, he got a little bit depressed. I said, "What's wrong with you?" He said, "I can't. We can't borrow that sort. Of, I, I'll never pay it back." I said, "That's the way the world is." So I had oh, to yeah. explain finance. I had to explain uh, bills and, and energy companies. Now he can switch and all. If 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 you're not used to that, like you and I are, yeah. It's a big thing. And they're not taught any of these skills. They're not taught how to think in order to survive happily no. in any way, shape or form. They're just taught academic stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. The bad thing is, for me, that there are some wonderful people working in the education system. Oh, At the University of York, I've met some fantastic, wonderful human beings who are trying very hard to make sense of the system they represent. Yeah. Um, the problem isn't them. It, it's it's the system in which they sit, the framework within which they sit, and the intersection between them and higher academia management and the students where they sit on that plane is fraught with danger because it's like quicksand. It's always moving. They don't get to determine how they do what they do. 
they just have to react. And in a similar way, that's what policing does. It reacts all the time. It's very difficult to be proactive when you don't have yeah. enough time, mm. resources, uh, whether it's people or buildings or cars or whatever. If you just don't have it, you can't do it. Yeah, you know? and, and so what do we value? How do we value it? Well, and where do we put our resources? That's a big, a big, a bigger discussion for another another day. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, just to, to wind it up, I'll tell you what we value above everything else in this country, or it seems that way. We actually value money. Everything has to be done for a profit. You know, I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted the other day to realise that um, the care system, where young people grow up in the care system in this country and a lot of the care system is now run on a for-profit basis so people are actually people are actually make, making decisions about the care of young people who for whatever reason have fallen out of the care of their own families or never had a family to care for them and um you know somebody somebody's actually profiting from that somebody's actually saying okay yeah we can't we can't do that because um it won't make any money Never mind if, about the future of the young people. I know we spoke, we should, I know we've gone over time, but very briefly I'll touch on this. Part of my dissertation is, is what I consider really this scandal in, in care homes throughout the coronavirus uh, period. Other people might disagree with me, but it's been, for me, um, a massive breach of, of human rights for a lot of elderly people who have suffered the ultimate consequence by dying because people haven't maliciously killed them, they just haven't cared enough to stop that death happening. Yeah. Um, we have a wonderful document from the Institute of Pol Public Policy Research, IPPR, yeah. and it's called Who Cares? The Financialization of Adult Social Care, mm. which is that one, yeah. uh, which I'm holding up for you. Uh, and that's by Grace Blakely and Harry Quilter Pinner. And that was a report in September 2019. And that's on the um, website um, www.ippr.org. And if anybody wants to read that, that's a very comprehensive picture of mm. financialization of the care home, residential care home sector, and how we've arrived to where we are now in the 21st century from the early 1980s. And it'd be easy to blame deregulation of the financial sector and how that's incentivized private investment in care homes purely for profit making and shareholder benefit, and blame it all on Margaret Thatcher. But we've had other governments in between, oh, and well, nobody's yeah. done anything about it. Nobody's changed you, it. Nobody's changed. Nobody's even bothered to look at it. They've all said, well, we might have to throw some more money at it, so we'll let the market throw money at it. Well, the market doesn't throw money at anything. It takes money out. Exactly. That's why the wages are so low. That's why they're not, they aren't staffed correctly. There's a lot of um, temporary staff. They're all paid statutory sick pay. So during coronavirus, um, you might feel you've got the symptoms, but are you going to go home and, and drop from £300 a week down to 82 I don't think you are. No. Not when you're living on the breadline, not when you have to get a taxi to work and back, which is a large lump of your money just to have a job. Um, there's not enough equipment in these places to deal with the NHS plan of putting older people back into residential care homes yeah. at a time of public emergency. So you've got to look at the planning contingency plans around the NHS, Public Health England, all the rest. But it all comes down to financialization of the private care home system. Yeah. If anybody wants to read that report, please do, because I think it's an absolute scandal. Yeah. And should there be a judicial review at some point, the government needs to be held to account for the deaths that they have helped cause. Yes, and I think that's, that's governments of all, of, of all parties as well over the, la over the last yeah. 30 years. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at Grenfell Tower, you look at uh, the way we deal with people there and the way we're still dealing with them, with that, that bias and that prejudice. Old people, when you say old people, are all old people. doesn't matter about the culture. It doesn't matter about the race. Yeah. They're old. And as a group, as a class of people, we as a society don't value people over 65 at all. No, we don't value, we don't value people unless they're economically active. Yeah, well, exactly. So yeah, when you talk about markets and you talk about financialization, that's that. So you can earn, yeah, you can work all your life like that. I'll be 65 next year. So uh, I know I don't look it, but I will be. <laughs> Try not to fall off the cliff, my friend. Well, you know, but I mean, you know, if I haven't made a small amount of provision for myself um, over the years, then, you know, I would be falling into that. I would be falling into the, a place where somebody would need to care for me. I wouldn't want to be in that position. Yeah, it is. Uh, we have the lowest public pension of any European country that I'm aware of. Yeah, we do. Um, I think that given that we are a G7 country, our provision for our elderly is frankly disgusting. And the, the, the more I get in my life's journey towards that point, the more I realise this. And then I think back, well, why wasn't I thinking like this in my 20s? Because it's not a consideration. No. Our society doesn't say plan for your future. It just says go to work today, come home, pay your bills. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people do. That's and it's not fulfilling. What to do? Well, it's not fulfilling. It's not spiritual. People, people talk about Brexit and politics. Why did we vote for Brexit? Well, the man in the street, the so-called working class man, the 35 million people that are classed as working class in this country, regardless of your race, culture, or anything else, they sat down and said, we've bloody had enough. We are two pay packets probably away from not paying the mortgage. Yeah. Coronavirus is going to kick 20,000 people out into the street, potentially, if they don't get any more help. Yeah. You know? So we've got coronavirus as well, and we've got a government taking, 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 blaming Europe. So most people go, well, let's pull out of Europe. If you're going to make my life easier... Yeah. And I don't have to worry about paying a mortgage and I've got a job. Let's do that. The next thing is, all oh, right, it's going to be really dark. It's going to be really horrible. People are, are they regretting the Brexit thing? Most people wake up in the morning and don't have time to regret Brexit because they yeah. have to go to work or worry about the possibility of not having a job tomorrow. Mm. That's, that's the balance of political power in the UK. And that's what people underestimated. The fact that people are absolutely running scared. The stress on people is enormous. Yeah. And my worrying concern for our society is if one strong figure, a man or a woman, stood up and said, right, let's do this together and manage to pull people together, we could go off either to a utopia or we could go to hell. Yeah. I think we'd follow either direction gladly because somebody said, right, we're doing this, let's do it together. If a Blairite figure arrived, remember, things can only get better. Yeah, the yeah, first yeah. Labour government. And we all went, yay! It sort of did, but it didn't end well. No. You know? No. If somebody turned up and said, right, let's do a little bit of nationalism, and we went that route, we are sort of the bulldog breed of Europe. If anybody's going to be a warrior race, wear it, and that's scary, because if you are we're behind a rock in a hard place, we'll fight. Yeah. That's, our, that's in our nature. We mm. pretend it's not, but it is. If somebody comes along and said, let's have a utopia, we'd fight for a utopia, and we'd make the world a better place. Yeah. God help us if somebody like that comes along, because that's what we need. Mm. Right. 
Shall we end on that? I think we shall. I think it's been right, absolutely, absolutely marvellous. I really, really feel inspired by by um by talking to you, Chris. It's been absolutely brilliant. So uh, yeah, if anybody wants to get in touch with Chris, uh, you can find him on most social media, Chris Wilson, W I L L S D O N, and um, I can promise you that I will that he will be back uh, sometime next year for another for a catch up on what, what's going on. I think. What you're doing is actually really interesting. So um, 